Hi again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. It's episode number 63. I'm your host, Phil Huber. I'm joined today, as always, by Logan Whitmer and special guest Danielle Rose Bird as we talk about her upcoming new book, The Handmade Bowl. So I join us for a really fun and lively discussion about green woodworking, carving, and fun tools to use. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Magazine. Woodsmith Magazine has been the trusted source for all your woodworking information for over 40 years. From tips and techniques to furniture projects to shop projects, you'll find it all at Woodsmith Magazine. Subscribe today at woodsmith.com. All right, Danielle, uh, since you're clearly the new person on the threesome here, uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? Sure thing. Um, I am a wood carver, sculptor, um, mostly making carved vessels, sometimes sort of abstract sculpture on the other end of things. Um, I work out of a studio in Bar Harbor, Maine, and, um, and I use a lot of hand techniques and power carving techniques. So it's like a blend of traditional and modern. Oh, cool. Yeah. So what's the, what's the weather like in Bar Harbor right now? Are you emerging from winter? We are, it's actually really nice out. And by really nice, I mean like low fifties. So I don't know where you two are at, but for <laughs> us, that's pretty good. <laughs> Central yeah. Iowa, that's same here. Fifties yeah. hit, everybody's in flip-flop shorts and t-shirts. Exactly, <laughs> like boom. Um, there's a good layer of ice on things, but it's not bad compared to other years. So I'll take it, I'll take it. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your book now, um, which I guess to correct is the hand carved bowl, I believe. So my apologies there. Uh, talk a little bit about the development of that and what you're, what you're aiming for in the, in the book. So with the hand carved bowl, um, it was sort of born from what I had seen in other craft instruction in in a in book or written form and I wanted to take some of what I found useful in in-person instruction and bring it to a book form um it's really hard to do you know it's really hard to replace <laughs> you know that in-person thing where one gesture might might be you know taken up by four paragraphs in a book you know just one sure. simple little you know, just this, like, like this, you know, and, um, and so it's, it's really difficult to replace and it never is quite replaceable. You know, it's obviously in-person instruction, um, is advantageous in innumerable ways, but I also saw that there was a particular demographic that was showing up again and again and again for classes. And I think that's informed by a lot of different things. Um, and I wanted to offer something for people to have access to that information without having to show up at a class. And it was something that was accessible and low cost. And those two things were important to me to be able to get information like that to people. And this, mind you, is before the pandemic happened. And sure. it kind of segued into that. Um, a few of those factors just sort of naturally blended into what we now call normal is you know virtual has taken over and um yeah. and it and it and it works well for that to that end um 
but originally I just wanted to make that information more accessible to more people who I wasn't seeing in woodworking classes that I was either teaching or a part of um, yeah. as a student. And I also felt like it was a lot of, at least with bowl carving in particular, there was some information here and there, but it seemed to be disparate. It was very strewn. Um, and there wasn't something that was really together, linear, and, um, and sort of gave it to you from the beginning to the end. And so I wanted to put together that information. I see a lot of it with spoon carving. Um, I think green woodworking has really boomed in the last 10 years or so. And spoon carving is, you know, sort of the, the easier access point. But with bowl carving, that information sort of lagged behind where it was, you really had to dig for it to get the right answer. So I was hoping to make something that, um, that could bring you from start to finish and answer some of those questions without having to be in person in a class. Yeah. I guess what I liked about it is the idea of having the whole book dedicated to bowls. Cause I know that there's been several much older titles that dealt with, you know, Swedish traditional carving or something like that. They dealt with bowls, but it was as a chapter, you don't really, there's a lot that you miss out on, I think in terms of nuance and being and able to treat it as a subject. Definitely. Um, Drew Langsner, I know, I think this past fall, Lost Art Press bought the rights to his book um, and re-released it with some extra information on bowls. But again, it is part, I, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really speak to it in detail. Sure. But um, I do know that it's part of a larger thing, but I, I also know that he um, specifically put more information about bowls in there. Um, because I know that his old website, Country Workshops, um, I believe he also left up sort of his archive of blog posts mm -hmm. about bowls. Um, and then Dave Fisher is the other sort of bowl carver, very well known, um, an incredible bowl, car bowl carver and teacher. And he has a, a, a wealth of knowledge on his website in the form of blog posts. Right. Um, and those are the two sort of places where I found information myself before I was able to attend a class, um, yeah. Peter Fonsby. So, but yeah, it's, it's hard to find it in just a one dedicated format. Now, I think one thing that Logan and I work with is with the magazine, and we also do some in-person instruction is being able to balance, um, or being able to get across. I mean, when you're teaching, in person, clearly there's a, a starting point and an end point where you're trying to get through in a certain amount of material, mm -hmm. but there's an improvisational nature of teaching that's tough to get across on a, in a book, isn't there? Yeah. And it's also <laughs> the way I work, you know, it, it's in bowl carving and green woodworking in general is very conditional. So it's hard to know what to keep and leave out, like where the threshold is for being like overload of information. At what point do you introduce certain concepts? Sure. I don't, you know, that was a struggle and reading over it and over it and over it and trying to, to gain that perspective of a person who, you know, this information would be new to is really hard to do. So to have other eyes on it that could read it because I almost knew too much where it was like, does that make sense? You know what I mean? Are you, <laughs> does that make sense to you as someone who doesn't know this information? Um, yeah, and but that improvisational part is really, really hard to capture in a static form like that. Yeah. 
yeah. where you can't add well, in those little things of being like, oh, I see that you're all looking very confused. Let me just add, <laughs> you yeah. know, like you can't do that. It, it, and that's, it's super scary to just put that out to the world and not be able to answer those little questions as people, you know, as they arise for people. Yeah, well, you know, and it's interesting, and I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, Danielle. I don't, as much information as you can convey through a written format, there's, in my opinion, there's no substitute for some hands-on learning as well. No. Like, yeah. like you said, just one little movement might take you three or four paragraphs to explain it, but, you know, be, me being able to walk up to the lathe and turn somebody's tool two degrees and all of a sudden all resistance they felt went away mm -hmm. you know there's there's no there, there's nothing that can compare to that hands-on in person but okay. the written reference is something that i think in the past i guess in the in the recent years we've gotten away from as a woodworking industry but i think that's coming back and lost art press has done a, a fantastic job of, of oh, producing yeah. some very very quality books that serve really well as reference material so i think I think your book does really well at that. Thank um, you. You know, if somebody wants to, to grab your book and start, it's a great reference. You can get through the entire process, um, you know, from start to finish, which I think is awesome. And that's what I'm hoping too is to, you know, it's not the end all be all. I feel like that book would be 1200 pages long. But and that's what I learned. I was like, I really, you know, you get all these sort of notions of what you're going to get accomplished. And then you get in there and you're like, so this might be 700 pages. Um, if I wanted to put everything I wanted to put in it. And then that's when it starts to get difficult to sort of like, you know, uh, trim it down. Um, and now, no, I don't think it will ever truly replace in-person instruction for the exact reason you just said. Um, and then to try and find out which things, though, are important enough that I want to explain them in those four paragraphs, you know, like which ones yeah. are going to be useful to people the most to get them to the place where I feel like they can learn the other stuff just by kind of going through the motions of doing what I've shown them. Um, so that was super difficult. And I found myself kind of having like these like mini existential crises where I was sitting there and being like, okay, like clear your mind. <laughs> We're doing this like this. So what am I doing here? You know, and, yeah. And, you know, many people have said this before me, when you teach, it's one thing to learn how to teach. And then coming from the perspective of learning how to teach people in this respect of having to write it down and knowing that's how the only way and the only channel through which people are going to receive that information, breaking it down to such a degree that when you're doing your movement, you're like, what is the epitome of what they need to, what's the takeaway here? And then right, you start yeah. to learn even more about your teaching methods of like, what's all this extra stuff that I don't even need to, you know, where's the meat of it? Um, and I feel like just by doing the book, I'm going to become a better in-person teacher as well, because I really synthesized what needs to be said. Um, sure. and, and distilled it that I feel like, all those little moments in my shop alone when I was doing the carving and going through and being like, okay, there's an extra note. There's an extra note. I'm sure my editor was ready to, you know, <laughs> so I was like, and actually one more, just one more thing. I just feel like this might be important. 
Yeah, when you're up to like 41 most important things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lots of little notes in the margins. So it, let me go ahead. Say, let me let me ask you this. I've heard from people that have written a lot of woodworking books, and there's two mentalities after they finish their first one. I will never do that again, or I can't wait to get started on my next one. What category do you fall into? I don't know yet. I feel like I'm okay. still too close to the beast. Um, and still, still, I'm not far removed enough from the, I mean, I haven't even shifted out yet. So I feel like I'm, I'm still too tainted by the process of being like, wow, I'm so done with writing. Um, which I also feel good about because I don't, I think in some weird twisted way, I still wouldn't, I'd feel just as, as bad if I didn't feel done with it. Cause I'm sure, like, sure. oh, I didn't leave everything on the table, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and I, say strongly that I feel like I left enough on the table um, in terms of like what I was able to give to that book at the time. Um, it was it was quite a challenge. Actually, well, we were we were slated to start um, photography for it just as lockdowns were happening. They shut the border at the state at the state line of Maine. Um, and Matthew and I, my editor, were talking and I said, you know, I have a camera. I can't say I'm that adept at using it, but I'm willing to try. So that was like, <laughs> I tend to dive into the deep end. I tend to do mm -hmm. these. Um, and so that wasn't initially planned and it took me a lot longer to get through because of that, of just me not only trying to learn like all these things I already talked about, like how to convey this information to people but then adding photography on the on top of it and learning the actual camera was um an added challenge it's, it's an understatement um there were times i deeply regretted it <laughs> <laughs> and i think i did an okay job considering the circumstances um i definitely got to know my camera a lot better um but it and I think that's why I can't really say with a clear conscience of like if I would be done writing books or not because the sure. circumstances were just so yeah messed you up. know out there yeah. probably never will be repeated and I <laughs> yeah. you're like this is why there are professional photographers yeah and yeah. why their day rate is what it is yeah because it's just like done done you do that you know the lighting and yeah. like the timer and setting that up and focus. I mean, I will, I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> wouldn't do it so, again. Nope. You know, one thing that I like about uh, your book is the, the large number of photos that was in it, because I feel like previous versions of green woodworking left that out a lot and there was a lot of description yeah. as well written as it is is just tough to follow so it was nice to do and i was wondering in the course of taking the photos and describing it did you find your own process changing where you think to yourself why do i do it like that you know i think you know that definitely happened like when i was talking earlier about how like really breaking down the process of being like what is exactly i'm 
doing here? And so, yeah, there's always that part. And I think literally having a lens on yourself, not only like a psychological lens, but like an internal lens, but a literal lens looking at you. (laughs) And you're aware of that and being like, yeah, is that what I, that is what I want to do. And I think that's also why there's a lot of notes in the margins, you know, at the end of that, because you're like, I think actually, if I did it like this, it's much more concise. You know, if we're looking to really, um, break it down, but in like simplistic terms and yeah, that definitely helps to streamline the process in all respects, my writing, my own process. And that's kind of how I work in general. Things don't stay the same a lot. But, you know, the core principles are always there. Um, And I think that's why I also wanted to focus on those and then let people know where there was room to expand. Because I feel like that's also where other craft instruction has sort of left me hanging a little bit. Where I'm like, but where where are the variables? Is this a variable or is this a constant? Is this something that I should do all the time? And do I have movement here? Like is this something you just chose or is this something that has to happen or else it'll crack in half? And so I tried to give a little bit more insight into that and let the book serve as a launching pad of like, here are some examples. And I left it pretty loose on purpose of, you know, that's also how I work. It's like, here's the general idea. It's, you know, the layout's pretty rough, but can be any amount of precision can be brought into that through whatever method and other people have done it much better than I. So I didn't try to, um, sort of reiterate that in any way. It was more of like, here are the core principles here. Here's where you don't have as much actual lateral movement. And then here's where you can just do what you want. Um, and so I hope I achieve that. I hope people feel encouraged to sort of know what those factors are know what's going to influence the decisions on a sort of, you know, core concept level, and then they can decide how their designs take shape beyond that. Now, speaking to that, I was thinking as I, you know, I've been following, as Logan would say, fanboying both you and Dave Fisher and Peter Follinsby in my own carving, only because I've come at it from the, the power tool, furniture, casework, square woodworking and have picked up some of the carving aspect is that there's a delicate balance between as as you were talking about of this is how I do it to get this result you know and I can read a book or write a project about constructing a case piece and there is some literalness to it but being able to say what are the general core principles in order to construct anything any kind of case piece And then related to that was uh, in seeing how your work has evolved over time is, I don't know, standing in the stream of that tradition of a hand carved bowl, you know, knowing what's all come before you and around you, so to speak, but being able to to branch out on your own. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I can see from doing in-person instruction when people sort of reach that point where they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, not true. You do know what you're doing, but you might be scared to take the next step. That's different. And I feel like that's what I want people to recognize. And I talk about that in the book a lot about like how to reframe failure 
not just in how it materializes in the actual bowl itself, but how we think about it and saying like, one, it's always going to happen. So like, let's just like anticipate it and like not necessarily like brace yourself, but like, let's just know that it's going to happen. And then like, what do we, how do we treat that? How do we treat it as a launching pad? And people say, well, what happens when there's a mistake in your work? I was like, I make it not a mistake. Like that's where some of my best designs have come from. And they'll say, well, how do you know what to do? I said, well, let's say, you know, a big chunk gets taken out. And I say, okay, well then I already know that that's negative space. So I need to take that out and like smooth it. And then I look at it for a little bit and then I just keep drawing and that informs the design. And I think that's where people get really like glossed over and sort of like, oh, that's, that's too much, which I understand because, and I think people don't truly believe me is that there's another side of me that is very, very type A and I use it for all of the other things, but you know, bookkeeping and research and, you know, and it lives there. And I thought when I started woodworking that it would translate really well to flat work and that did not happen. And it surprised me a lot. And I found that my woodworking became sort of like, you know, where I could do all the things that weren't like that. Um, and it felt too confining to me. It felt too, um, it's not the right word, but predictable where it's like, I don't want to really know the outcome. I, I do generally, but I like the excitement of almost like when things go wrong because they never go right, really. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. It, especially with green woodworking, like I, I really enjoy that dynamic and that sort of reciprocity of like I don't get to sort of dictate what this material is going to do. It sort of has a mind of its own. I understand some principles about how it's going to behave, and I can anticipate some things, um, but it never really goes quite how I want it to. So it really has helped me, like on a you know, like a personal, like emotional level, just kind of go with the flow of being like, okay, that just happened. What do I do? <laughs> you know, like, what do I do with that? And sometimes it means putting it, putting it aside for like two weeks and starting on something else, um, which um, there are obvious parallels to that in other realms of, of our lives where we're just like, you know what? I don't know what to do with that yet. I'm just going to shelve that and yep. uh, we'll get back to it. And that's where some of my best work has happened where I, and it took years to find out where that line was of knowing when I was pushing it and when I was exploring and really being experimental and it's a gray area. But um, I also, I'm hoping that by giving people parameters in the book and then telling them where there's more leeway, that they'll be more encouraged to take that jump and to find where their own, you know, where their own designs sort of have a place and where they want to take that. That's my my most sincere hope out of that entire book is being like, here's the basics, here's what you gotta know, here's how the wood's gonna predictably behave. And then there's a lot of X factors and like go out there and explore. I really hope people use that as a launching pad. Sure. So from your own personal standpoint, how did you get into green woodworking? What, what kind of led led you down this path? I mean, I feel like I was doing green woodworking without even knowing I was. I didn't know there was a word for it. Um, you know, it's just like kids just messing around in the woods. It's kind of what I was doing. And then you're like, oh, I was 
I guess I was kind of green woodworking without knowing that's what I was doing. You know, a pen knife or Swiss Army knife or some old piece of metal. I just was hacking at something, you know, yeah. <laughs> like how we how we start. Um, we're like, that looks kind of sharp. <laughs> yep. Um, and then that just kind of like grew and grew and grew where I was making things out of like, uh, I went to school at College of the Atlantic, which is actually in Bar Harbor. Um, it's on the island I live on, on Mount Desert Island. And part of the campus is, co it's right on the, um, on the beach, on the, on the coastline. And there was um, old logs that would wash up. So I was just kind of like gathering whatever I could and just started making stuff. I made this uh, like a mini harp one time. I think it was one of the first things I made in college. And I had like old guitar strings from the music department and I used rocks from my driveway as like, um, I don't even know what to call them, underneath the strings to help keep them taut so it wouldn't dig into the wood and it would resonate more loudly. And I made like this little this little harp that you could kind of hold against your shoulder. And I made all these carvings into it and I carved sort of like, like bridal joints really and some th um, through tenons and didn't really even know that that's what I was doing. I was just like, how do I get these things to match up? Um, so it was a blend of things. Um, I started also working on a project for my senior project at school, um, which was making a fiddle. And I made it out of all of these pieces of wood that were in this burn pile that they were going to torch because they had just done demo on a, one of the school buildings. And I didn't have any tools and have any money. So I was like, great, free wood. Can I use the maintenance department's tools? I don't even know what they have, but they gave me, it's a small school and you know, everyone knows everyone. They gave me a key. They just were like, you know, go wild. They said, don't be dumb. Um, just like <laughs> all appendages attached. Um, and they let me just kind of do what I wanted to do. And I made this little fiddle. I actually have it here. So my best experiences in life started with the phrase, don't be don't dumb. Don't be dumb. Yeah. yeah. So I made this. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, that's of, awesome. I believe these were floorboards. Um, these are pet, like old tuning pegs from, um, the tool barn. I don't know if you guys heard about the tool oh, barn. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I bought this piece. This was, um, formed on a scrap, um, piece, uh, form that I made. And then I soaked them all in scalding hot water cause it was the maintenance department. So they had scalding hot water coming in through their pipes and, um, and I just soaked them and then slowly formed them around the frame. I mean the, the jig and, and made that. And as I was making that, I started in my downtime waiting for these things to set or dry or, you know, while I was waiting for the wood to soak, um, I used one of their old dull chisels, um, to carve a spoon out of one of those floorboards. And I was like, how are people doing this? Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of sanding involved a lot of swearing and just being like, I don't, how are people doing this? And, um, I started going on woodworking forums for the next, I don't know, four or five years and just reading and gleaning all these little tidbits. And it was like mm -hmm. unbelievable how much I'd have to dig and read in order to find the piece of information that I needed that would fill in that gap. Right. 
So I feel like that's where also this book was born is just like, I don't want how, you know, I just wish that it had been laid out for me like this. Basically, I made the thing that I wish I'd had. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think there's, uh, you know, I think back on some of my first shop spaces that I've had and tool selection and choices. And on the one hand, you look back and you're like, how did I even get into this with so little? And yet there is a, a joy or a delight in being able to overcome a lot of those initial obstacles of mm -hmm. no money for materials or um, really poor quality tools or something like that, that you've persevered to and to get through all that. Mm -hmm. And even though sometimes it, it develops um, poor habits, like <laughs> those things, it also, if you can make something cut, like, with a really bad edge and not the right tool, when you get the right one and you learn how to sharpen, you're like, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I worked for Lee Nielsen doing um, demonstrations for a few years. So we travel around the country with a, a set of tools and, and do like in-person on-demand demonstrations. So it wasn't like a planned thing. Whatever people asked, we'd be like, oh yeah, that's how this works. And sure. sharpening was like, number one sometimes i'd be there eight hours a day just talking my face off and just being like what do you need to know keep going and i without question the most sort of you could see it on people's faces where they just be like Whoa. like they just they just got you know beamed somewhere uh -huh. else where they were like oh. <laughs> um so that was very satisfying and i also think it's one of those things that once people get that down their work starts to really take off. Sure. You know, I've noticed that too, when I've done a couple of sharpening classes, that very same look where it's all of a sudden <laughs> like, oh, I thought it was sharp when it was new. No, there's a different sharp. Mm -hmm. There is a different sharp. And, and it was both fun and scary sometimes because people it became very clear how unfamiliar they were with that level of sharp where you'd see their finger go for it. And you're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know that one, they're not even going to feel it. And then right. two, they just, it, it has, you, you just know if that's even like an impulse of theirs that they haven't experienced that yet because they wouldn't go anywhere near the, the tip of that. Um, which is both like heartening and disheartening. It's the same, very, you know, very same moment of being like, you're going to draw blood and you're also going to have an extreme appreciation for what you just learned. <laughs> um, it's, it's that good wholesome <laughs> moment that they learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually would carry band-aids in my pocket while I was doing sharpening demonstrations. <laughs> Um, I'm going to hand these out first. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, is sometimes, a lot of times you wouldn't even see it happen. You just see the quick, like, you know, the, yeah. the impulse to like pull your hand away. And then it would just quickly be like, great. And I keep with my talk and then I just slowly hand them a bandaid. Be like, if you mm -hmm. need this, I don't know. Like, <laughs> so sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, another question that I have in terms of, and this is something that I've, as I started getting into green woodworking, just as a, on the side of my other woodworking projects is I think one of the obstacles people have is finding materials. 
Because it's not like you're going to run down to Lowe's and be like, I need two bark up bull blanks about 24 inches long and then three like relatively large, you know, slabs. And so how do you go about finding materials? Um, It's actually something I've struggled with, too. I think people find that hard to believe because I'm in Maine and I'm in rural Maine. But um, I'm on an island, so it's a finite amount of space. And I'm on an island which about half is comprised of a national park. And it's scattered around, so you never quite know where it is and where it isn't. Not to say that I'm just, like, you know, pulling pieces off of land and being like, who cares? I'll find out if it's parkland or not later. Um, And there's also a lot of seasonal like wealthy seasonal residents and so there's not a lot of land where you just kind of happen upon a friend who owns like 60 acres and is like clearing or you know managing their lot or anything like that you have to really sniff around so i have arborist friends um and that's also a reason why i kind of keep things in rotation where i'm doing sculptural work that doesn't involve sort of what I would use for bowls or um, spoons or anything like that, where it doesn't have to be as clear or as high quality. And I can still use old logs and sort of salvage, but use it for more sculptural projects. Mm, Sure. Um, That's helped a lot because it is, it's pretty tough. I've had to source from quite a ways away. Um, Other people, you know, if you go to lumber yards and ask for, you know, seconds or thirds for old veneer logs is another thing that people yep. for, for chair makers use that a lot too. Um, but in places, you know, I've had people write to me in like Florida and they're like, what do I use? And I'm like, well, here are your options. Um, I can't know every single area and what that's going to look like for you particularly, but like suburban areas, people are like, what do I do? Um, and I'm like, you know what, you'd be surprised if you start putting the word out and like going places and you know you see a a line crew working and you say what are you doing with all this later um (laughs) you earn a reputation and sometimes it's like it's a little hard because it's greenwood so you have to really act fast to get it on it um as soon as it's cut but you know arborists line workers people if you see anyone if you hear a chainsaw you know, you start being like, where's it come from? And so it's, that's, that's what I recommend people do. Um, and then sometimes people have been going in on logs together. So oh. I'll say, oh, so-and-so is headed up wherever and their friend has a lot or so-and-so is doing, you know, lot management and they'll go in on a log together. I've heard of people doing that. Um, and then also with smaller items like spoon carving, a lot of people are, are offering blanks now too, and they'll ship them, oh. which is a little, much more feasible than, you know, bowl blanks, large ones anyway. Right. Um, but there's a variety of ways, and I cover it in the book a little bit as sort of like, you know, just check out all these different options if you can. If you can't, I've done bowls with, um, with dried wood too, and just, you know, not the the clearest, most optimal pieces either. Um, and it's something I talk about in the book of like, how perfect do you need this bowl to be, you know, to like get what you need to get out of it 
do you want it to be beautiful? Well, that can be beautiful if it's cracked everywhere. You know, I have plenty of those where I did it with full intention, knowing it would and hoping it would. Um, and so I try to like, you know, let people know you don't need the most primo, you know, starting blank for this, you know, use what you got. Um, whatever you have on hand, whatever you can use, go for, um, and I, and I hope people are able to source wood or at least find some way to get something. And that's another reason why I wanted to sort of give people those parameters and, and give them as much information as I could if they're not able to take a class. Because some people only have one shot. You know, they're right. like, I worked so hard to get this one piece of wood. How do I just like kind of get to where I want to go and, and have an inkling of what I need to do to get it there? So I'm not just like, you know, blindly forging forward and then ending up with something that's really going to disappoint me. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's definitely a privilege to have access to wood like that. Yeah. I think it's, what's interesting about it is the idea that, you know, a lot of times woodworking feels solitary, but in a green woodworking situation, it almost, um, intentionally and unintentionally builds a sense of community because now all of a sudden you're putting the word out to other woodworkers who are on the lookout for bull blanks or, uh, you know, getting to know arborists. I know Logan's got a, a portable bandsaw mill. So all of a sudden he's got, you know, people calling arborists him. Are the best friends. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yep, they so, find out. yeah. It's inherently sort of, community driven. I think that's also because of the process itself is very start to finish. Sure. You know, and it's not just picking up, you know, lumber, which is like someone supplies it and you get it, you can do whatever you want with it. It's very, you have to acknowledge it in all of its steps. So I think it kind of like, you know, inherently draws all those people in throughout those stages. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think you're right if you get the word out that you're looking for stuff, eventually you're going to get more calls than you necessarily want. <laughs> it's very Which true. Is... And, and also if you're like, I, I tell people, I'm like, you know, behave yourself, like go there yeah. and clean up and leave it nice. People are going to notice and they're, and without even really meaning to, they're going to mention your name again. I was like, sure. bring them a little something that you made, you know, even if they say no, just be like, thank you. I'm, I appreciate it. You know, I was like, not, you're not angling for anything. Just like, you know, tell them that you appreciate it. And this, this is what you're doing. A lot of people don't know about this stuff. So if you just like, you know, bring them into the process a little bit and then they might not even be able to help you, but they know a friend all of a sudden who has a tree and who are they calling? They're calling you. Yep. Right. Yeah. But it's true. You get a lot of calls where you're like, thank you so much. I just, I, one, either I can't take on that much wood because you can't stockpile greenwood like you do lumber. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not going to sit in the attic for a while. And yeah. You get to a point where like, I can't process that much by hand and the amount of time it's going to, you know, go, go bad. Let's say, you know, not bad, but it's going to start to split or mold or both. Um, or it's just sometimes, you know, it's on like a residential area right next to a street. And I'm like, oh, what's in that one? What's in that one? How many nails? How many bullets? Is there a fence in there? Yep. We get yeah, a bike? Yeah. You know, and it's hard because 
as you become more proficient and you understand just by a glance what you're wanting and what you're looking for, it becomes easier to be like, I'm not going to bank on that. And, and that might be more enticing to someone who's like, I don't even really know if I'm going to do this. So I'll just use it, you know? So, um, there's various levels there of like, how, how deep in are you? (laughs) And, you know, and, and I was definitely the first few years taking anything that came my way, anything. And I had like a set of tools that I'd be like, I don't, if I hit a nail, whatever, you know, yeah. not as heartbreaking as if I had my precious and I, you know, oh, <laughs> not, it's like, the, that's like when I just don't even look and I put it down and I just turn around and like walking away. Yeah, I, I turned down an oak log this weekend because I could see 12 black stains on the stump. I'm like, yep, not doing that. Like, nope, no way. Yep. Not touching it. Bing, bing, bing. Yep, stopping it's exactly. It, stopping it every time, changing the blade. <laughs> yep. It's like, ooh, that would be $700 worth of bandsaw blades. Nope. Yep. Mm-hmm. And see, that's Not the thing. It. It's like, you get more, you can just look at it once and be like, and nope. Yeah. Gets a lot easier as you. So, so when we're on the topic of material, what's your fi- what, what is your top two or three favorite woods to work with? Um, if you're doing carved vessels, because as a turner, I have my favorites. I've not worked, I've worked walnut maybe once. We just don't get it up here. You know, and that's the other thing. It's like, you get kind of, you know, pigeonholed a little bit, depending on what's available. I've worked a lot of birch. I love birch because it's that beautiful space in between, like easy enough, soft enough, but like it takes a nice crisp edge. Sure. And mm-hmm. I've been running into a lot of poplar. Um, it's okay. it's not necessarily like my favorite to carve. Like it doesn't leave the cleanest surface. You know, it's a pretty soft wood. Um, but it's been really nice for sculptural things because it's it's in, it's structural integrity is not something I prize it for anyhow because it's a softer wood, and it's just a little bit easier to sort of get details in places. Because it's not, you don't have to put so much controlled force into like a really strange area. So I've been using that more for my wild experimental stuff. And then sure. when I get a piece of birch, I'm doing like, you know, more, not traditional forms, but more recognizable forms. Because um, it would be a lot harder to do what I've been doing in the poplar, in the birch. Mm. It would be exponentially more difficult. Um so it's, I don't really have like a, a favorite. Cherry is nice. It's not my favorite. Um, I love the color. I love the tone. I love how it, you know, deepens and gets more rich as time goes on. But it's pretty prone to checking. It can get a little mm-hmm. crumbly, a little brittle. Um, I would love to get my hands on more walnut. I have a feeling I'd really enjoy it. Um, we just we just don't get it up here. Sure. But what are your favorite so um walnuts up there um so one of my favorites let me grab this uh and i was just gonna ask you know whenever i travel i always have a weird desire to bring wood back from wherever i'm going so i just spent some time in vegas so i brought or i brought back uh olive log um and this was phenomenal to turn sweet so cherry walnut 
Um, olive turns beautifully. Um, I did some, one of these platters above my head is basswood, which was, co- I mean, it was completely just off the wall, <laughs> saw the log randomly last year. And I was like, I'm going to I wonder how this is going to turn. So I threw it on there. It's like butter. So I turned yeah. a couple platters and I'll just carve like... the rims at some point. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, everybody talks about how nice basswood is to carve. Um, but it can get a little soft and mushy. Yeah. You know, same with poplar. So, you have to be really good at sharpening to like make that yes. good enough. It's still gonna tear out and not be amazing because mm-hmm. of the shapes that I'm doing. But like, I wonder, I'm, I'm not a turner. I've turned maybe three spindles in my life, but sure. I can see how that would kind of be the same. And also it's almost scary how little pressure or force you have to give it in order to get the same thing you would in something like birch or walnut where you're just like whoa i don't know my own thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely takes some getting used to yeah for sure so let's talk a little bit i know you cover it in the book but um talk a little bit about the the workspace of someone who's doing hand carved bowls because it's going to be quite a bit different than your than your casework woodworker. Definitely. Isn't it just a backyard? <laughs> Isn't that the stereotype? <laughs> it, it really is just like, and that's kind of what I love about it too, is that you can really kind of make it work. Like I've seen people work out of their vehicles before. Um, you know, green woodworking, you can make a little bench set up just from a, a part of a log. And this is another reason why saying yes to, you know, not optimal carving logs is good because then you're making chopping blocks and carving benches from that. Um, and actually when it's a little bit more gnarled and not suitable for bowls is when it's best for everything else, like in terms of all the shop accessories. So making like a little carving bench that sort of has like the notch taken out of the top face. Um, that's, an, you know, with the, um, the staked legs, you know, super simplified bench setups that you can either take the legs out and make it more packable either in your car or, you know, and if it's not like a traditional shop, if it's like a bedroom, then you can stow it away really easily. Um, chopping blocks, malls, like big clubs you can make from those non-optimal sort of, uh, contorted grain logs. And then, um, and then other just sort of regular benches that can be modified in a number of ways to to make those things work. Um, hold fasts become your friend very quickly. Um, scrap pieces of wood to sort of put over the top of your bowl or um, or on the across the bottom of it to pin it down to the bench with hold fasts. That can even be done without hold fast and doing it. Um, with a setup that I actually tried out with threaded rod going through holes in the bench, wing nuts, two, oh, yeah. three, you're done. Um, you know, and that's like $7, maybe seven bucks somewhere on there. Um, and then I also have, you know, a traditional workbench. I have a Lee Nielsen big, I think it's seven, six footer. No, it's a seven footer. Um, ash bench and of course it's it's heavy and that's what I do all my finish cuts on it gives it to the right height it's got enough weight behind it that it's not you know scuttling around 
Um, <laughs> but of course, like anything, you can modify your other benches too and just weight them down. I mean, with sandbags, anything on yeah. the base mm -hmm. to make them more suitable for that kind of work. Um, that's kind of what I love about this too, is like, you know, the accessibility point is like, you can, you can make any of those benches I just mentioned out of logs and get yourself eventually to the point where you're able to get a bench where you don't have to keep switching over or modifying or, oh, yeah. you know, I still use those things, but in just a more limited capacity, you know, and then I move on to something else that's more suited for the next task that's made it much, much easier. But the first however many years I was just using that chopping block and log and, you know, when you need to, you find out all the ways you can use that thing. <laughs> or not. <laughs> you know, real quick with the switch. <laughs> so, I mean, no shop, no discussion of shops goes too far away from tools. What are there, and, and again, yeah, I know you cover it in the book, but like, what are some of your favorite tools when you're working on a bowl that you get to a stage where it's like, finally, I get to use X tools? I mean, the ads is always up there. It's a tool that a lot of people don't, you know, you wouldn't have to use in any other capacity unless you were like using antique tools to hew beams in your timber frame. You know, it's like, sure. and even that, it's like a completely different type of ads that you're using. But even the motion that it uses, like the the tool shape itself like people are just drawn to it because they can tell it's like ooh that's that's something that I haven't yeah. got to do but they also immediately know that it's like I get to swing that thing like you know, <laughs> and they know immediately like I want to do that yeah um, so that's very very fun always and it's hard too because you can feel that pull and you're like did I do everything I need to do before I really go to town on this because it's also incredibly hard to show restraint once you get to that point um, <laughs> and to like not go over over your lines and to not get carried away and to like actually bring thought into your process while you're just like, <laughs> whatever's coming through and getting channeled through those ad swings you gotta uh -huh. like keep in check um so the ads is is up there it's fun it get hogs away waste like nothing else the acts similar you know where you're, you're getting a lot of work done very quickly um and the, the spoke shave, it's, it's just, it's good every time. It's just one of those things where I'm like, I wish I had a little plane. Oh, I do. You know, I think people, <laughs> it's a little tiny plane. Like it's so, there's such a, um, immediacy and like the, the feedback you get from it. Whereas yeah. like a hand plane, even like a, like a little 102, you know, it's right in your palm, but you're not, you just, there's still enough separation between the material and your hand that you can't really tell what's going on. And with a spoke shave, which I almost always use one-handed, it's just, it's like right here. You know, you can feel everything that's happening and that allows you to either stop very quickly or to change course very quickly. And you, sure. can, you can feel it transfers like any sort of scuttle, any sort of skipping on the grain, you can feel it immediately. So I like that feedback. Yeah, it's almost like the the safety razor of a carving knife. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's, it's really you're not gonna, it's not as likely to slip and cause damage to the piece or yourself, mm -hmm. but it still has that 
you know, because I've used it too, where it's like a almost like a whittling or knife motion with it, and it it is fantastic. So I I could definitely see that. Yeah, having that reference surface, you know, because a knife is so freeform that you really have to bring you have to do all these other things in order to bring that consistency. And with right. the spoke shave, it's just the built-in control is there, and so it's. It's a beautiful little tool. Like I'm thinking like easing all the edges on the bowl at the end. There's just like nothing mm -hmm. better than just being like, whoot, whoot, you know, and you just know <laughs> you can hear it. You can see it. You can feel it. All those things add up and you just know that you're in the right spot. You know, you're at the right angle, the right depth of cut, all of it. And it's, so, it's such a simple tool. You know, there's nothing to it. It's just either it's too deep or it's, it's not. Yeah. I also like it too in the fact that, you know, like you've talked about before with shop spaces, you know, your piece, you can be holding on to your piece and still get really predictable cuts. It doesn't have to be locked down in a vise, mm -hmm. you know, so you have that feedback of holding on to your bowl and making those cuts. So you're kind of getting a multi-sensory interaction with the piece, I guess. Definitely. And I, I, I feel like that kind of body awareness just, when you're holding it, you're like literally cradling, cradling it like a child. And at that point, when you've put that much investment into it, you kind of are. You're just like, please, I don't want to drop this. Like, <laughs> I, I've taken care of you so delicately this whole time. And when you're working it, you get to a point where you are so aware of all of your actions and your body movements that that sort of just like, that brings awareness to the entire process. You start becoming more aware of how all of those little, you know, micro movements build up into more efficient and skillful work. All right. I think that gets us close to our hour here. Danielle, thanks for joining us. Where can listeners come across you and your work? How can we find you? The two spots I inhabit the most are my website. That's daniellerosebird.com, and that's bird with a Y. And um, Instagram, which is at danielle underscore rose underscore bird. Okay. And the book is The Hand-Carved Bowl, and you said that's coming out mid-April? April 13th. I have pre-orders open on my website right now, but that will okay. be ready to go on April 13th. All right. So we'll have a link for all of those on our show notes page. You can find that at woodsmith.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us, Danielle, and good luck on maybe your next book. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And <laughs> hopefully I can get some distance and decide if that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Shop Notes Podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Plans. You'll find nearly a thousand plans covering everything that you'd want to build. From furniture projects to gift projects, kitchen accessories, workshop projects and jigs and more. Find your next project at woodsmithplans.com.